One of the most foundational statements in all of the New Testament is found in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, where the Apostle Paul says, For we walk by faith, not by sight. It is so crucial that we understand that fundamental truth about the Christian life. We walk by faith, not by sight. If you expect to have to be able to see something before you will believe it, you won't make it in the Christian life. If you expect to understand why God does what He does or doesn't do what He doesn't do, you will be sorely disappointed. If you think you are going to see in this life why everything happens, you are going to end up disillusioned. We walk by faith not by sight. We can't understand God's ways sometimes. Things don't make sense to us. We can't see it because we aren't expected to see it. We walk by faith, not by sight. That's the Christian life this side of eternity. However, the day will come when we will no longer need faith. Think about that. The day will come when we will no longer need faith because our faith will become sight. Faith, this fundamental aspect of the Christian life, will one day become completely unnecessary. But there is one aspect of the Christian life that will never become unnecessary. Paul tells us what that is when he says in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, and now abide faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Love is the greatest because it will never become unnecessary. The day will come when we will no longer need faith because our faith will become sight. The day will come when we will no longer need hope because our hope will become realized. But there will never come a day, there will never come a time when we will no longer need love because love will go right on from this life into eternity. In eternity, we will love. We will love God, we will love the Lord Jesus Christ, we will love the Holy Spirit, and we will love the people of God. Love will never cease to be a part of our experience as a child of God. Never. That's why the Scripture has so much to say about love. The text to which we come this morning is another example. Let's turn together to 1 John chapter 4, over near the end of the New Testament. If you are not already there, 1 John chapter 4. And please follow along as I read verses 12 through 16, which will be our text of consideration this morning. 1 John chapter 4, verse 12. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love has been perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us, because He has given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son as the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. 
And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love. And he who abides in love abides in God, and God in him. As you can see from reading through these verses, John continues his discussion about the importance and priority of love. I say he continues because he began that subject in verse 7 of this chapter. Prior to that, in the opening verses of this chapter, he gave a serious warning about the importance of being discerning and not believing everything you hear in the world of religion or in the world of Christendom. Verses 1 through 6 of this fourth chapter tell us to examine, examine all the teaching we hear, examine everything we hear to make sure it lines up with the truth of God's Word. That is an extremely important aspect of the Christian life. Coming off of that text, John launches into this extended section on the importance of love for one another. John was so wise and seasoned and mature. He had lived life for over 80 years by the time he wrote this letter, and he had seen a lot of things in the body of Christ, a lot of things in the family of God. He understood how easy it is for Christians who want to be discerning to also be harsh, abrasive, and unkind to other Christians who don't see things in exactly the same way. Beloved, there's no room for that in the family of God. There's no place for that. Verses 1 through 6 tell us to be alert for heresy and doctrinal error about the person of Christ. Those kinds of errors are damning errors. We must take a strong stand against those kinds of things and against those outside of the body of Christ who propagate those heresies. We must. However, we need to be careful. Now please hear this. We need to be careful that we don't allow that drive for accuracy in doctrine to cause us to nitpick others in the body of Christ who don't dot every I and cross every T exactly the way we do in our understanding of Scripture. For example, there is no need to be caustic toward other Christians who hold to a view on the timing of the rapture that is different than your view. There is no need to be venomous toward other Christians who hold to a dichotomy or trichotomy view of humanity, regardless of which view you think is right. It is unacceptable to be harsh toward other Christians if they don't line up with your view on believers having only one nature, which is the new nature, or believers having two natures, the new nature and an old nature. It is not right that Christians end up putting one another down disrespectfully because they hold to a limited atonement or an unlimited atonement view. It is inappropriate that some Christians make fun of other Christians because they hold to unconditional election or the reality of genuine human volition. And I could continue to multiply examples. 
I am not implying that these are unimportant issues, and neither am I saying that it is wrong to wrestle through these issues to form your own personal view and understanding of what you believe Scripture says. It's not even wrong to debate these issues with mutual respect and Christian charity. And we certainly have the right or the prerogative to present our views with conviction as long as we are not ungracious to others who don't line up with us. What I am saying is that it is wrong when we don't take seriously the very clear statements in Scripture about the importance of loving each other in the family of God. You know what? You may be wrong in your view on the timing of the rapture or the extent of the atonement or the exact process of progressive sanctification. I know it's shocking for some of us to hear that we may be wrong in some of our views, but it is a fact. We may be wrong. These kinds of issues have complex aspects that make it difficult to understand them with perfect clarity. But one thing is perfectly clear. One thing is abundantly clear. And that is that God wants us and expects us to love each other. Jesus said it in John 13, 34, John 13, 35, John 15, 12, and John 15, 17. Paul said it in Romans 12, 10, Romans 13, 8, Galatians 5, 13, Ephesians 4, 2, 1 Thessalonians 3, 12, and 1 Thessalonians 4, 9. The writer of Hebrews said it in Hebrews 10, 24. Peter said it in 1 Peter 1, 22, 1 Peter 3, 8, and 1 Peter 4, 8. John said it in 1 John 3, 11, 1 John 3, 23, 1 John 4, 7, 1 John 4, 11, 1 John 4, 12, and 2 John 1, 5. Could anything be any clearer in the New Testament? God wants us to love one another. And think about this. If we all saw everything exactly the same way, we wouldn't need all these commands to love one another. What I mean is, the reason why God tells us so often to love one another is because He knows there are differences among us, different perspectives, different views among us, that could cause us to pull back in our love for one another. So the assumption behind all of these commands to love one another is that we don't see everything the same way, we won't always be on the exact same page, and we won't all do things in the exact same way in ministry. Our differences are one of the things that have the potential to affect our love for one another, which is why God repeatedly tells us that He wants us to love one another. Don't just love Christians who have the same view you have on the timing of the rapture. Don't just love Christians who have the same view of election that you have. Don't just love Christians who appreciate the same Christian authors or speakers you appreciate. Am I suggesting a lack of discernment? Absolutely not. Am I implying that we shouldn't study these things out to wrestle through our understanding of biblical issues? Not at all. I am just saying what I believe God is saying, which is that loving one another is an extremely high priority on his list of priorities. That is why John has so much to say about it 
and so much to say about it in the same chapter where he tells us to be discerning. Verses 1 through 6. So coming off verses 1 through 6, which are a call to discernment, John launches into this extended section on the importance of love, and that runs all the way through the end of this fourth chapter. In the verses we looked at in the last message of this series, John elaborates on God's astounding love for us as a motivation for us to love one another. He tells us that God sent His precious Son into the world that we might live through Him. God sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. In light of God's love for us, as undeserving as we are, we ought to love one another. That's the message of verses 7 through 11. It doesn't matter if others deserve it or not. We didn't deserve God's love, but He gave it to us anyway. That's the example of how we ought to love, and that's the incentive for us to love one another as set forth in verses 7 through 11. As we move into verse 12 this morning, John addresses this same issue, but from a different angle. His purpose is still to urge us to love one another, but he seeks to motivate us in a different way. Let me explain what I mean. Verses 9 and 10 tell us what God did in the past out of love for us. Now, these verses tell us what God does in the present when we love one another. Verses 9 and 10 are the result of God's love for us, and verses 12 through 16 are the result of our love for one another. To say it another way, verses 9 and 10 are a description of God's love for us in the past, and verses 12 through 16 are a description of God's love for us in the present as we love one another. The key word in this text that we just read is obviously obviously the word abide because it occurs five times in five verses. That repetition is intended to get our attention. Abide, 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 abide. You may remember John has already talked about us abiding in Christ. Back up to chapter 2, verse 28. Do you remember this verse? Chapter 2, verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Here is an exhortation for us to abide in Christ so that we are ready when he comes back to get us. We need to always be abiding in him so that when Jesus descends from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ rise first, And we who are alive and remain are caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air so that we're not ashamed. So that we're not doing something we shouldn't be doing or living in a way we shouldn't be living. We should always be abiding in Christ. That's chapter 2, verse 28. But in chapter 4, in our text in chapter 4, John takes the concept a step further and he talks about God abiding in us or with us, when we love one another. Now, with all this as background, let's go back to chapter 4 and consider this brief but powerful text consisting of only five verses. Notice chapter 4, verse 12. 
No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love has been perfected in us. John's opening statement here in verse 12 is the same as the statement he made in the opening prologue of his gospel account. In fact, when I read verse 12, maybe that was familiar to you. Maybe you said, I've heard that somewhere before. Where is that same or similar verse found in the Bible? Well, it's found in John 1.18, which says, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. He has shown Him to us. He has demonstrated Him. So John 1.18 says, No one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten Son has made Him known. Here, he says, no one has seen God at any time. But notice, then he goes on to talk about the importance of loving one another. If you put those two thoughts together, John 1.18, no one has seen God at any time, but Jesus has shown us what he is like. And then you put this one together, no one has seen God at any time, but when we love one another, then God abides in us. When you put those two thoughts together, it is obvious what John is saying. Here it is. He is saying, no one has seen God at any time. When Jesus came, he showed us what God is like, but now Jesus is gone. He's no longer here on the earth bodily. So if this world is going to see what God is like, they're going to have to see it in our love for one another. That's John's point. And it shows us how serious this responsibility is. Jesus came to show the world what God is like. In fact, on one occasion when Philip said, Jesus, show us the Father and we'll be satisfied. Jesus said, Philip, have I been so long with you and you don't know me? He who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus came to show the world what God is like. And now that he is gone, it's our responsibility to show the world what God is like. And how do we do that? By our love for one another. Jesus himself said this in John 13, 35, when he said, By this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Beloved, do you know one of the reasons why more people in this world don't want to know God? One of the reasons why people in this world don't want to know God is because we don't love one another like we are supposed to love one another. Now, that's not the only reason. I'm not putting all the blame on us. There are other reasons. John 3 says people love the darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. They don't want to give up their sin. They don't want to give up their self-rule. There are other reasons. But Jesus did say in John 17, 23, that one of the ways the world will know that the Father sent the Son is by our unity, our love for one another. So when we are fragmented and divided and at odds and we don't love one another, it sends a very unclear message to the world about what God is like and who Jesus Christ really is. When we don't love one another, people in this world cannot see that God is with us. That is why John says here, In this verse, he goes on to say, If we love one another, God abides in us. God is with us. He's in our presence. 
He's manifesting himself. So what does this mean? Does it mean that if we don't love one another like we ought to love one another, then God doesn't abide with us? What about the many passages that promise his presence with us all the time? What is John saying here? He is telling us that when we love one another as we ought to love one another, then we experience the benefits of God's abiding presence. Now, it's not that God isn't with us when we don't love, but when we don't love, we do not experience the benefits of God's abiding presence. Let me illustrate it this way. In the story of the prodigal son that Jesus told in the Gospel of Luke, probably most of you are familiar with that story. In the story of the prodigal son, did the father love the son? Sure he did. Did he, did he love the son less when the son was rebelling and gone than when the son was at home? Did the father love the son less? No. No. The only difference was not in the love of the father, but in the location of the son. Not the love, but the location. When the son was home, he was in the position to benefit from the father's love and the father's presence. But when he left home, he he removed himself out of the position to experience those things. When he repented and came back home, he came back into that position to experience the father's love and the father's presence. Another way to illustrate this would be to think about the benefits of being out in the warm sunshine on a bright day when the sun is shining. Now, on a day like that, if you choose to stay inside a cold barn, the problem isn't with the sun. The sun sun is still present, and the sun is shining brightly. All you have to do is put yourself in a position to experience the benefits of the sun's presence. The sun is there in the sky, bright, clear, shining. But your location is going to hinder you from experiencing the presence of the sun, the the warmth of the sun. The same thing goes for the Father's presence. He He is always present with us. But when we refuse to love as He calls us to love, we do not experience the benefits of His abiding presence. The hindrance is not with the Father. It's not on His part. It's on our part. Or to turn it around on the positive side, when we love one another as we ought to love one another, then we experience the benefits of God's abiding presence. And when we love one another, then God's love has accomplished its goal in our lives. That is what is meant by the last phrase here in verse 12, where it says, And his love has been perfected in us. So what this is saying here, now by the way, this this Greek word perfected, when we hear that term, we think of absolute perfection. That's not the idea behind this Greek word. This Greek word has the idea of completed or accomplished or fully matured. So what this is saying is that one of the goals of God's love for us, now catch this, one of the goals of God's love for us is to get us to love one another. Therefore, when we do love one another, God's love has accomplished its purpose in our lives. Now, beloved, think about what this is saying. 
think about it. This is really a completely different perspective than how we often view the love of God. When we think about the love of God for us, we almost exclusively think about God's purpose to draw us into a relationship with Him. That's how we think about the love of God. Rarely, if ever, do we think about the fact that a primary purpose of God's love for us is to get us to love one another. You know why we don't often think of it that way? Because, frankly, we are all very egocentric. We focus on what God's love does for us without thinking about what God's love requires of us. God's love for us requires that we love one another. And when we do, the end of verse 12 says, God's love has accomplished one of its primary purposes. That's what John is saying here, and he adds a further clarification in the next verse, verse 13. He says, By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us, because He has given us of His Spirit. It seems that John adds this thought so that his statement in verse 12 is not misunderstood. Let me explain what I mean. In verse 12 he said, If we love one another, God abides in us. Someone could wrongly conclude that John is teaching us in verse 12 that God's presence with us is conditional. In other words, if we love, then God will love us and be with us. And if we don't love, God's going to say, that's it, I'm done with you, I'm through with you, I'm not going to be with you anymore, out of here, forget it. That would be a wrong interpretation, a wrong assumption. So John clarifies with verse 13. He says here that the way we know that we abide in Him and He in us is by virtue of the fact that He has given us, given us of His Spirit to indwell us. That is the guarantee that God is with us. Ephesians 1.13 says, The indwelling Holy Spirit is the seal and guarantee of our salvation. Paul uses the term that could be uh, talked about a pledge, a, a, an engagement ring, a, a guarantee of our salvation. We know God abides with us because Scripture makes it clear that His Spirit indwells us permanently. We can, we can no longer, as the Old Testament saints could do, we cannot send the Holy Spirit away. It's impossible to be a Christian and not possess the Holy Spirit because Romans 8 and 9 says, If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. So God always abides with us because the Spirit always abides with us. However, that doesn't mean that we will automatically enjoy the benefits of the Spirit's presence. Because we know from Scripture it is possible to quench the Holy Spirit. It is possible to grieve the Holy Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 5.19 says, Do not quench the Spirit. Ephesians 4.30 says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you are sealed to the day of redemption. That's such an important verse. Did you catch it? Do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you are sealed unto the day of redemption. It doesn't say, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit or you will send Him away. No, do not grieve the Holy Spirit because He has sealed you till the day of redemption. So you don't want to grieve Him. So the Spirit is always with us, which is the guarantee that God abides with us, but we only experience the benefits when we are living the way the Lord wants us to live. And in this context, 
the way the Lord wants us to live, the emphasis is on living a life of love. If we keep that in mind, the next verse will make sense to us. Verse 14 says, And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son as the Savior of the world. At first glance, this verse seems to be written at random without any connection to this section. Certainly, certainly it's true that we know the Father has sent the Son as the Savior of the world. We know that. But how does that fit with what John is saying here? How does that statement fit in the context, in the flow of John's argument? I believe the answer is found in the words of Jesus in John 17, 21, where he prayed for our unity and said this. He prayed, Father, that they all may be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us. Now, here we go. Listen. So that the world may believe that you sent me. You see, we believers know the Father sent the Son as the Savior of the world. But the only way the world will know that is when we demonstrate love and unity. That's how this verse ties in with the context. We testify that the Father has sent the Son as the Savior of the world. But listen, our words are empty if we don't love one another. Our words are meaningless. They have no They have no impact to them. Love backs up what we testify. Love reinforces what we say. Love affirms what we assert. Our love for one another is a kind of testifying to the world in actions, not merely in words. That's what John is saying here in verse 14. And having stated that important truth, John makes another clarification, lest he be misunderstood. He says in verse 15, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. Once again, this verse could seem rather random if we don't make the connection with the rest of the passage. Up in verse 12, John stated, If we love one another, God abides in us. It would be easy for someone to take that statement in isolation and assume that anyone who is a nice person or who is a kind person or a loving person is automatically a Christian. But that's not true. Remember, throughout this letter, John presents three marks of a genuine Christian. The social test of love, the moral test of righteousness, and the doctrinal test of truth. All three must be present. Thus, it would be wrong to assume that everyone who comes across as a kind person or thoughtful person or loving person is therefore automatically a Christian. He or she is not a Christian, says the Holy Spirit in this verse, unless there is an embracing of the truth about the person and work of Christ. Let me be more specific. Nice people who don't believe in the deity of Christ are not saved, according to Scripture. Kind people who don't believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ are not children of God, according to Scripture. Loving people 
Loving people who deny the true humanity of Christ or deny his virgin birth do not have the Lord regardless of what they claim, says Scripture. This is such an important point because it is not uncommon for Christians to be confused by religious people who are very nice and very kind and very considerate and claim to belong to God, but who also deny the deity of Christ or deny some other fundamental truth about Christ. What John is saying here in this verse is this. Just because they are nice, just because they are kind, thoughtful, loving, and claim to be children of God does not mean that God is with them unless they are willing to embrace the truth about what the Word of God says concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. One specific example I think of is the Mormon church because often they are some of the nicest people in the world, kindest people in the world, and that may be true. But it is also true that Mormon doctrine denies the deity of Christ and Mormon doctrine asserts that Jesus is the spirit brother of Satan, the spirit brother of Lucifer. God in Mormon theology is a resurrected, glorified, exalted man who had sexual relations with a goddess and had this, this more than once had two children. One turned out good, one turned out bad. The good one is Jesus, the bad one is Lucifer. Jesus and Satan are spirit brothers. That's officially Mormon theology. And so what the Holy Spirit is saying here is you cannot believe something like that about Jesus Christ and be a child of God. People who believe that kind of error do not have God abiding with them and in them, and they are not abiding in God no matter what they claim. That's why John inserts this verse, this 15th verse, and then he closes this paragraph on the high note of verse 16. Notice how he closes it. He says, And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love. And he who abides in love abides in God, and God in him. The we and the us in the first part of this verse is a reference reference to genuine children of God. We have experienced God's love for us in Christ, and we believe it. We have the privilege through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ of experiencing the benefits of God's love. We know and believe what God says about His love for us. We know and believe that He loved us even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, according to Ephesians 2.1. We know and believe that He loved us when we were going our own way, according to Romans 3.12. We know and believe that He loved us when we were ungodly, according to Romans 5.8. We know and believe He loved us even when we were enemies, according to Romans 5, 10. We know and believe what God says about His love for us. We have experienced His love by virtue of our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. This love is not based on our worthiness. This love is not based on our loveliness. It is not based on our lovableness. It is not based on our deservedness. It is based on God's character and God's essence. And that's why John adds the last sentence in verse 16. He says, God is love. And he who abides in love abides in God and God in him.
God is love. John said that back in verse 8 in the previous section we considered, but he can't resist saying it again because it is such a monumental reality. God is love. That's, that's who God is. That's what God is. It's not enough to say God loves. Sure he loves. But it's more than that. It's, it's way more than that. God is love. That's his essence. That's his nature. That's who he is. That's what he is. And that is why John can say, He who abides in love abides in God and God in him. Beloved, do you want to experience God's abiding presence in your life? Do you want to have the assurance that you are abiding in God? Then love the way he has instructed us as his people to love. That's what this passage is saying. These are the benefits of loving one another. You know, this this isn't difficult to understand. It's just difficult for us to do sometimes. The importance of loving one another isn't hard to see in Scripture. It's all over the place. Whether you're talking about Paul's writings or Peter's writings or or the writer of Hebrews, it's, it's everywhere. It's not difficult to see it. The difficulty comes in our unwillingness to love like this when we don't want to do it for whatever reason. Maybe it's because someone has hurt us, or maybe it's because someone has offended us, or maybe it's because someone isn't like us, or is different than us, or whatever it is. But beloved, this is where the rubber meets the road in your Christian life. That's when we see just how genuine our Christianity really is. Because this is what God calls us to do. The difficulty sometimes is being willing to do it. Let's bow together as we close. As you bow your head and close your eyes here at the end of our service, I do encourage you to close your eyes so you're not distracted by any movement around you. And I want to encourage you to think about what you have seen in God's Word this morning, what you have heard with your own ears that God has said And think about your love for the people of God. Your love for the body of Christ. Are there people you avoid in the family of God? People that you say you just, you don't like, so you'll just stay away from them. Or do you love the people of God? Do you love those who are like you and don't deserve to be loved? We're all undeserving. And God calls us to love one another. Now, if you're here today without Jesus Christ, then it would be understandable that you don't love all the family of God because you're not in the family of God. And so the first issue for you is coming to know Jesus Christ personally as your own Lord and Savior. So I would urge you this, mo- this morning, this very moment, right where you are seated in the quietness of your heart, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your own Lord and Savior personally, or if there's some doubt in your mind, 
Settle the issue now, this, this moment. Call out to the Lord from your heart and ask the Lord Jesus to come into your life to forgive your sin. Tell him you want his salvation. You want him to, to change you, to take you, and begin making you the man or the woman he wants you to be. Call on the Lord. Scripture repeatedly says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And Father, we thank you for that promise. That promise that is repeated so often in your word, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. We pray that there would be some here in our midst this morning who right now, this very moment, in the quietness of their own hearts, would be calling on you for salvation, calling on you for forgiveness. And Father, for those of us who by your grace have called upon you for salvation, we see that your love not only intends to bring us into a relationship with you, but your love for us requires that we love one another because none of us are deserving. None of us are worthy. We have all been loved by you as as undeserving sinners. And so may our love for others in the body of Christ not have all these conditions that we put there that you do not put there. Teach us the importance of love, the priority of love, the practice of love, so that we would present a clearer picture of you and your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.